Hello, and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona, during our normal service. John Shelvin, I'm happy to be preaching with you uh, this morning. Um, In the vast amount of movies that exist, inevitably you're going to have some that have a remarkably similar plot, but that have nothing to do with each other. Um, There's all kinds of examples of this, and they're kind of fun to talk about. Like You can talk about a movie in an abstract way and be like, what movie am I talking about? Um, So for instance, I'm going to tell you the basic plot points of a movie, where a single father is overprotective of their child, and then the child uh, is abducted or goes missing. And so obviously the father is worried about the child, puts himself in numerous dangerous dangerous situations to find the child. Uh, He journeys far away to uh, faraway places, meets many interesting characters along the way, and eventually is able to rescue their child. And so what movie am I describing here? Maybe you're thinking about movies and you're like, oh, where is he gonna go with this? Well, I could be describing lots of movies. I could be describing Finding Nemo, or I could be describing uh, Taken, uh, starring Liam Le- Le- Neeson. Uh, you know, in, in the first situation, the father is a fish. In the second situation, the father is, is a human being. Um, so we can do that with all kinds of movies. We can do that with songs as well, where you can take the, um, the, the tune or the melody or parts of one song and intermix it with another song, and they blend together really well. And it's, it's just very interesting. Um, if you look up the phrase song mashup on YouTube, uh, you will see countless examples of this. Um, a famous example, we're in a church. Let's talk about churchy stuff. You can actually sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island. Uh, That's a fun one. Maybe you've heard of that. Maybe you haven't, but amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, was blind, but now I see. We're not going to sing amazing grace at the end. If we were, that would be interesting. Conversely, you can also sing Gilligan's Island to the tune of amazing grace, but that's not as exciting. Um, So I bring up these examples because we're going to look at miracle number two in John's gospel in, in the healing of the royal official's son. And last week, we looked at the miracle of the turning the water into wine, and the beats of that miracle match the beats of this miracle as well. So we're going to flesh those things out. The way these miracles pan out, the story, the details, the basic plot points kind of, uh, kind of go, uh, go together. So we'll flesh those out as we talk about this second miracle in John's Gospel. As always, I invite you to pray with me, so uh, we'll get started in prayer. Lord, we are thankful so much for your word. We are thankful for the truth of your word throughout the ages. We're thankful for the truth of your word for us here and now today. I pray that I would indeed be able to preach and proclaim your truth. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. We pray that we would be brought glory and honor, uh, for our glory and honor is truly and rightfully yours. And we pray that we would learn to better be your disciples as a result. Amen. All right, so our story starts off. We see that Jesus has been traveling. Um, Right before this story, he was in Samaria. He has an extended conversation with the woman at the well. Um, Jesus talks about being the living water as he talks with this woman um, who has had five husbands. And through this encounter, many in the town uh, put their faith in Jesus because of that. And so he travels through Galilee, and now he's back in Cana. I mean, the text actually reminds us that this is where he turned water to wine. 
Again, this is the first miracle in John's gospel where Jesus announces the start of his public ministry. And as I said in my introduction, we'll kind of um, discover some parallels between the two uh, this morning. Um, but we're introduced to a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. A Capernaum is about 15 or so miles away from Cana, so it's a good day's journey um, from his home. Uh, we don't know much about the man. Um, there's many details about the situation we simply don't know. Um, we don't know his name. He's an unnamed royal official. Uh, we don't know what his role is, aside of he's just some sort of, you know, a person who's in charge of something. Uh, we don't know why he's in Cana. Again, he's a day's journey away. Maybe he's there on business. Uh, maybe he's seeking out a doctor for his son. We don't know. Uh, we don't know if he's Jewish or Gentile. Um, we also don't know exactly what's wrong with the child. We don't know what kind of sickness the child has. Uh, but we do know in this day and age that infant mortality rate was very high for babies, children, etc. Uh, one source I was uh, using said that only about half of children uh, made it past the age of five in that day and age. So 50% of uh, kids didn't make it past the age of five. Um, obviously, they didn't have modern medicine like we do now, and the fact of a child being really sick or dying would have been a very familiar, very common thing uh, for the original audience. And so there are all kinds of elements, all kinds of details to the story we, we maybe don't know uh, 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 with the people who were involved, um, but we can certainly empathize with the plight of the man. Um, but in verse 47, this uh, man comes to Jesus, and he, it says that he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum and heal his son, who is about to die. And, and so this makes for the first parallel uh, with the previous miracle, where someone comes and presents a problem to Jesus. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. And here uh, the man comes to Jesus and says, please heal my son. And then we see uh, Jesus' response to this man in verse 48. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Um, Jesus' response to this man is a little bit interesting, I think, for a few reasons. Um, for starters, he denies the request, which is similar to uh, the similar parallel to our last miracle story as well. When Mary says to Jesus, they're out of wine, he kind of just like brushes her aside. And here, uh, he initially denies the man's request as well. And normally when someone comes and presents a case of life or death before Jesus, we would expect him to be filled with compassion and to reach out and heal the person. Um, and so that's a little bit unusual as well, that he kind of just writes the man off and kind of brushes him aside. Um, but what's also noteworthy is that his response is not just addressing the man. He's actually addressing the crowds here. Uh, the underlying Greek has a, a plural audience in mind. And so maybe a slightly more accurate way to translate Jesus' response here would be, will you people never believe in me unless you see a miraculous signs and wonders? If we were in the South, will y'all never believe me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? And so Jesus is doing some crowd work here. He's speaking to the man, but he's also addressing the wider audience. Um, but this royal official, he isn't put off by Jesus' response. He doesn't give up after this initial rejection. He persists. His son is dying, and so he asks one more time in verse 49, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Jesus then says to him, go back home, your son will live. Uh, John records how the man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. And again, this has some similar beats with our last miracle story. Uh, Mary does not give up after her initial rejection. She tells the servants to do whatever he, he, he asks, and then we have the miracle happening. Um, and this royal official also doesn't give up. Twice he asks Jesus to heal his son, and then we have the miracle happening. 
Um, so the man goes on his way back home. He encounters his servants who tell him that his son was healed at the same time that Jesus said that he would be healed at 1 p.m. And remember, there's a 15-mile distance between Cana and Capernaum, and if he would have left Jesus at 1 o'clock p.m., he would have had to stop over, overnight somewhere. And he's traveling by foot. This is the ancient world. Probably not a good idea or even really practical for that matter to be walking at night. They don't have street lights, 15-mile journey, lots of wild animals, robbers, all kinds of things like that. It's a very dangerous uh, time to be traveling at night. So it would have had to take him a day uh, to get home. And so uh, he finds out the next day that his son is alive and doing well, and that's amazing. You know, that's awesome. His son is alive and doing well and, and is healed. Um, Jesus doesn't even have to come by to lay his hands on him like he does in most miracles. Uh, it's by his very word, by just speaking, he's able to heal. According to verse 53, not only does the man put his faith in Jesus, it says how the entire household believed in him as well. And so we have one final parallel between this miracle story and the last miracle story. In both of them, when the people see what Jesus does, they end up putting their faith in him. And so in the first story, it's the disciples who put their faith in Jesus, and it's, in this story, it's the royal disciple in his household. All right, so we've been talking about this miracle. We've talked about talking about the healing, and we're kind of grounded in like comparing this miracle and the previous miracle story. Um, and there's a there's a healing that happens in the story, and that's good, and that's amazing, and that's wonderful. Obviously, the royal official and his household they're big fans. They like that this has happened. Um, but like with the water to wine miracle, I, I think that there's more happening than just uh, face value healing that we see. I think there's a deeper um, uh, meaning here that John is pointing us to. Remember, these miracle stories were very, craft, were very intentionally crafted by John, and I think he's trying to like, show us something with these miracles. You know, last week with the water to wine miracle, we talked how this miracle points to the underlying truth of who Jesus was, that he was coming to replace the old, or, the old order of things, the water, with something new, the wine, and that he was the wine, and this was a reason to celebrate. And by performing this miracle, he was starting on his journey to the cross. And in this miracle, a child is healed, and that's great. But again, I think something a little bit deeper is going on here. Um, and I think the deeper understanding is tied in with verse 48 and Jesus' somewhat exasperated question of, will you all never believe me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Remember, he's addressing the man, but he's also addressing the crowd. You know, this man, he's heard about the wondrous things that Jesus has done. He's heard about the water-to-wine miracle. He's heard maybe Jesus has done some other miracles as well. Uh, the crowds have heard this, and, you know, they're wanting to see some miracles. They're wanting to see some healings as well. And so this man, this royal official, he's with them as well. He wants to see a miracle. He wants to see his son healed. That would be a miracle. And, again, that's not a bad thing. You know, any parent would want that. Obviously, any mother or father would want that to happen uh, for their child. And even, like, you know, as you kind of read Scripture, as you kind of, like, grow and change with your life, like, the way I read this story now as a parent is different than how I read it four or five years ago, before I had kids. You know, this, this man wants to see Jesus do a miracle uh, by saving his son. Again, it's not, that's not a bad thing. Um, but, you know, when it comes to interacting with Jesus, I think it, it, it's a little bit different. Uh, because Mary, Jesus' mother, through that miracle, she had to learn, like, through, uh, through that miracle, like, who her son really was, that there was something deeper going on here. She was asking him to take care of the issue of them being out of wine, but he was telling her that symbolically that he represented something new and something greater and something more important. That something greater was in front of her, 
um, and, he was on a, and she was on a journey to understand fully just what that meant. And I think likewise for this royal official, likewise for this, this man in the story, he has to learn what it means to come to Jesus to ask for help. That Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just some guy that can do all these crazy things, including healing people. Um, he can do these things, yes, but he's so much more than that. Uh, the man wants his son to be healed. Obviously, Jesus wants that as well. But Jesus also wants this man to believe in him, that he isn't just a miracle worker, but that he is this man's savior as well, that he is this man's Lord as well. And Jesus wants this man to believe in him, not just believe that he can do signs and wonders and miracles and solve this problem. He wants him to believe in him, not that he can just do these things. He wants the man to believe that as well as the crowds. And so I think that's why there's so many parallels uh, between these first two miracle stories. A person is coming to Jesus, they're asking for help, and Jesus is calling them to something deeper. He wants both of the individuals asking, as well as the crowds around him, to understand the full scope of who he is, and that he's not just there to solve temporary problems. That he is the new wine available to all people. That he is the great healer, bringing healing and salvation to all people. That Jesus is there to save this man and his entire household as well. He's not just there to save his son. And that's what ends up happening in verse 53. Again, the whole household ends up believing in Jesus. And so ultimately, Jesus is calling this man to a higher level of faith. He's calling him to a deeper understanding of who he is. He's calling this man and his family to a life of discipleship. You know, Jesus is more than just the miracles he performs he is the miracle from God. He's more than just the miracles he, he performs. He himself is the great miracle. You know, and I think that for us, and, for, and when we talk about like faith and theology and God and all of that, you know, we all bring our perspectives on what we want. We all bring our perspectives on how we think it should be. Like the man you know, brought his request to Jesus. We're always bringing our request to God as well. You know, we have our vision of a life shaped by faith, and what we think the greater world uh, would, would look like if we were all shaped by faith. You know, part of that is our, our prayers and our conversations with God. You know, we, we bring our requests to God. We bring all the stuff that weighs on us that we're kind of dealing with in our souls. And we bring our silly stuff, and we bring our selfish stuff, and we bring our honorable stuff and our heavy requests as well. We bring everything and anything, I think, in between these two extremes. And I think that God very much wants us to be doing that. Like, there's no uh, matter too small or too weird to bring to God. God wants to know what is going on in our lives. We actually had a very um, extended conversation in Sunday school this morning about, like, being honest with God. And, like, just we saw this anger that King David had. And it made a lot of us uncomfortable with the honesty of his anger. But I think God's okay with that. God wants us uh, to be doing that. And I don't know how all of that fits together. Like, the, there's the idea of a God who hears us when we pray a God who is invested in our lives, and then the fact that life isn't always easy and that we experience real hurt and real pain. Like, that is the life that we live. You know, I believe that God hears us when we pray. I believe that God is invested in our lives. But then we also experience hurt and pain and things don't always go our way. Um, to use a fancy word, there's this thing called a theodicy, which is the problem of evil in the world. And if God is good, why is there evil? If God is all-loving, 
Why is there suffering? You know, um, there's all sorts of variations of that theme. Um, to put it in a way that would relate to a teenager in the early 1980s, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker to open? It's a real book, by the way, you can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> um, humans have been trying to answer this question basically like since the beginning of time. Since we have existed, we've been trying to like understand suffering and evil and like how do we make sense of all of that kind of stuff. And it's not just a Christian thing. Other world religions deal with this as well. And I don't know how it all fits together. I don't have this magic, oh, I figured it out in this 20-minute sermon. I don't, have it all, I don't know how it all fits together, but this I do know. This is something I do know, that Christ has come into the world, and he has leveled the playing field in regards to sin and death, and that one day he will come back to restore all things. And I think we all have our personal vision of what we think that looks like. When we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, I think all of us are picturing something I think, you know, if Christ were to truly be in control, like, hey, here's what I think it will look like. And whatever we're conjuring up in our brains is probably just a pale shadow of just what the absolute beauty of what that will look like. So picture the new heavens and the earth, picture something beautiful, and then multiply that times a million. You know, but, but that's the world that we're seeking after. That's the world that we're trying to make a reality. That's the, like, the life that we're trying to teach to our children and our grandchildren. Those are the principles that we're trying to live by here and now. Like we believe Christ is in control. Let's try to live like it, even though this world is broken. And until that day arrives, until the full reign of Christ is here, whether it's tomorrow or in 10,000 years, Christ is calling all of us to believe in him and to follow him and to trust in his ways, to be his disciple like he was that man in the crowds. That is, I think, what we're doing here. And as we live on this mortal coil... At times, we may experience wine, and at times, we may experience healing, and at other times, we may only experience water, or maybe the miracle doesn't happen. And maybe we aren't even experiencing water. Maybe we're just dealing with garbage or sewage or something, like, really bad. And Jesus is saying, regardless of what may come, I want you to believe in me. I want you to believe in my ways. I want you to be a church for one another, to press on with one another. Uh, living a life of, uh, marked by faith does not mean that we will always get our way or that the things will always be good and always be happy. But Jesus is calling us to trust in him, to trust in the ways of Christ, even maybe when they don't make sense or when we really don't want to. And I, I, you know, there's this version of faith that's out there that says, like, hey, if things don't go our way or you're dealing with some kind of pain or suffering, it's your fault, man. You didn't pray enough. You didn't pray the right words. You know, something like that. That's a theology that's been around for a long time and won't go away. And that theology is complete nonsense and just needs to go away, but seems to keep sticking around. You know, it, it's easy for us to approach God with our laundry list of demands and say, this is what we want to happen and expect it all to be done exactly how we think it should. And when things don't instantly go our way or how we'd like them to go, uh, that we turn and get angry or mad or upset at God. But that's not how it works with God. We like to blame God for the good and the bad, but we easily forget that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, that the sun rises on both the evil and the good. It is, the sun is shining right now. Does that mean I am evil? Does that mean I'm good? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe somewhere in between. You know, we're all called to continually put our faith in Christ, and believe that he is the miracle above all miracles, that he is the bridge that closes this broken world with God. 
Ultimately, that's what Jesus was asking of the royal official in the story this morning. That's what he's asking of the crowds. And that's what he's continually asking of us as well. Yes, God can and does act in mighty and crazy and strange and powerful ways at times. Jesus can do stuff like heal the official's son without ever having to visit him. Uh, But like this royal official we encounter in, in chapter four of John's gospel, we are called to a belief in Jesus Christ and his work in the world, and we are called to love and serve him as well. We are called to be a community that exists to care for each other as we spurn each other on to love God and love neighbor. You know, we are not in this alone. God is here with us. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. We are called into a new community, the church, who exists to lift each other up and to care for God, to care for neighbor. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.